Perspective, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condice Presley, and as you noticed, that was not the normal music that we use to open this program every Sunday morning. That was Morris Robinson. Special guest on our program today. Morris was a kid from Ben Hill, but next week, early March, you will be able to see him performing in Porgy and Bess at the Cop Energy Center. I don't think I've ever interviewed an opera singer before, Morris, much less one who grew up in Southwest Atlanta and now has been performing for 20 years. Welcome to Perspectives. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Oh, this is going to be so much fun. Say that again. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I know you must, I, you got to get tired of that. People oozing over the, the quality of your voice. I said hello to you in the lobby and I thought, oh, this is going to be so much fun. Well, I, I'm used to it, but uh, it certainly is is flattering and uh you know, I, I can't tell secrets, I can't whisper, so that's always, that's one of the drawbacks, but yeah. So folks, Morris was a kid from Ben Hill, became an All-American football player, and then, get this, became an international opera star, performing on the world's most prestigious stages. As I said, he will be performing in the Atlanta Opera's production of Porgy and Bess, March 7th, 8th, and 10th as Porgy. And you get to perform at home. How delightful is that for you, sir? It's a, it's a wonderful treat to be able to sing at home. I, I don't get to do so often. I often live out of a suitcase and on the road. So um, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity for people at home that don't get a chance to travel the world to see me, uh, to see me sing here, hear me sing here. Um, I'll have tons of family members Tons of church members, cousins, aunties. I mean, Everybody want tickets and don't want to pay for none of know, them. You know, and I'm, I've already kind of headed that off to say, look, I'm only going to have these, these this set amount of tickets, and those have already been accounted for. So, uh, yeah, I'm getting messages from high school friends, college teammates I haven't heard from, coaches, you know. And it, it's better to get that stuff out the way now so that I can concentrate on the performance. So, yeah. Now, most opera singers begin their training in high school, study voice in college, and then I, there's a traditional path to do what you do. My understanding is your path was not traditional. Tell us what it was. It was completely not traditional. Um, I did have some background here in Atlanta. We do have a wonderful arts community here, and I was a Dinsmore kid at Northside School of the Performing Arts, so I was also... Uh, I did tour show there, but I also sang in the concert choir where we did the Mozart's Requiem my junior year, and I had the bass solos. Uh, Haydn's Creation my senior year, and I had the bass solos for that. But I ended up taking a football scholarship. Uh, being a big black kid from southwest Atlanta, you know, it was, I did the Atlanta Boy Choir for two years, but that just wasn't my thing. I wanted to go out there and be one of the cool guys. I wanted to hit people without going to jail. So I ended up playing football at Northside and got a football scholarship, and uh, I did that in college. Where'd and, you go? Uh, Citadel. Okay. Yeah. So I graduated Citadel in 91. While at the Citadel, I was the director of the gospel choir uh, for all four years. And I sang at events, and people thought my voice was special then. But, you know, when one has a voice like mine, it doesn't necessarily fit into the gospel genre, which I grew up in here in Atlanta. Um, I was a church drummer, by the way. That was my thing. I didn't sing that much in church. But, yeah, that voice doesn't fit into anything to which we're normally exposed. So I didn't know what to do with it. Um, I went ahead and played college football. Then I got a job in corporate America after that. 
And I worked for several years in corporate America, and it wasn't until I auditioned for a chorus in Washington, D.C. Just for pleasure. Uh, for p- pleasure, curiosity, to see what, what, what could come of it. I was completely unprepared, but I sang the tuba mirum from the Mozart's Requiem for Norman Scribner of the Choral Arts Society of Washington, and he stopped playing halfway through it and said, where did you come from? And I said, well, I live in Woodbridge, and I'm in sales here. And he says, well, you should be singing on stages, and that's kind of what lit the fire. And I sang in his chorus, and he had me doing Congressional Black Caucus events and singing national anthem at football games. And then I moved to New England to take a new job with a, a division of Exxon in Monsanto selling raw materials. And uh, it was there that I sang for the New England Conservatory of Music. I sang the national anthem for them, and they offered me to join their opera studio, which I did on the weekends. And Sharon Daniels from Boston University heard me and literally walked up to me and said, I'll give you a full scholarship if you quit your job and come study opera with me. So uh, not knowing that that was one of the most prestigious opera programs in the country, Opera Institute of Boston University, they take 12 students. All of them have their master's degree in music except for me. And... uh, you know, the task at hand was was, uh, was daunting, but I, you know, I focused and said, look, if I'm going to sacrifice and quit my job and give up my security to do this, I'm going to put all my effort into it. And it's been a wild ride ever since that day. Did it take a long time for you to decide to step out on faith that way? Many, many sleepless nights. Who does something like that at the age of 30? I had no examples prior to of this ever happening. I mean, sleepless nights. Conversations with Denise, conversations with my dad, my mom, my frat brothers, my teammates, and everyone believed in it except for me. Ah. Because it was just illogical, you know, to do that. You know, I thought at the time I'm 30 years old, I don't have any kids, I can give this two years. And if it does work, fine. If it doesn't work, I'll go back and work for, you know, and a lot of people kind of said that. So I just decided to enjoy the journey and I quit my job. I bought my next door neighbor's sob. I turned in my company car. I went and got a job at Best Buy loading boxes in the morning from 6 to 10 in the morning. I'd come home, take a shower, grab lunch, and go to school at 1 o'clock. And I did that every day. Uh, And it was very shortly thereafter that things started unfolding. Uh, The first production we had, Boston University gave me the lead role of Bluebeard in Bluebeard's Castle, which is like, that's daunting in and of itself. Then I did an audition for Boston Lyric Opera for their chorus. And the chorus master heard me gave me some music and said, go home and learn that. I want you to sing for somebody next week. And I sang for Stephen Lord, the music director of Boston Lyric Opera, and he gave me the role of the King and Aida. And that was the first two weeks of studying opera. So I had a lead role, and then I had a role with the largest opera company in New England within two weeks of starting. So that was kind of God's way of saying, see, I told you. And that's when it really just took off. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know German. I didn't know French. I didn't know Italian. I had never sung in those languages before, but I knew I had the academic acumen to pull this off if I just concentrated. Uh, I'm a Citadel graduate, so I'm somewhat intelligent, but I am hardworking. So those things all came together and being a former athlete and being able to draw from within and, and push through. And You understand discipline. I understand discipline and adversity and getting knocked down and getting your nose bloodied and standing back up and fighting. So, And all those things, in a metaphorical sense, happens you know, when one is undertaking something like opera for the first time. You know, you walk into a situation where you're completely green and, uh, you know, you, you try to try to sink or swim, try, try to swim and not sink. So, yeah, it was very, it was exciting. It was exciting. It sounds as if with each progression, you encountered someone who basically looked at you and said, where have you been hiding this talent all this time? Did you ever encounter naysayers or people who thought, 
Morris, you're 30 years old. You've worked in corporate America. This could be a hobby for you, not a career. Yeah, I've heard all those things, actually, early on, and I still face naysayers to this day. Uh, And if I don't, I do in my mind because I always feel like I have a point to prove. Uh, That's the chip that I carry on my shoulder that I have to – look, first of all, let's just be 100 about it. If I'm – as an African-American, I learned early on, especially in corporate America, that I have to be – exceedingly better than everyone else to be treated as an equal and perhaps not make as much money, but at least be accepted. So when you walk into a situation of the high arts dominated by um, people that don't look like ourselves, you have to prove that you're worthy of being there. God blessed me with a voice, but I had to cultivate that voice. I had to learn how to, you know, to sing in phrase, sing a a disciplined sense of singing. Uh, there's lots of, in the arts that one has to learn that you're not aware of. Musicality, stylistically, from period to period, different composers require different things. How to use the voice correctly, how to project your voice, you know, um, how to preserve your voice, how to stay healthy, um, you know, singing in languages, singing in different styles. So all that stuff I was learning, it was like drinking water out of a fire hydrant. But I was determined to prove that I was worthy. I wanted my level of talent to match what God gave me and... Sometimes that's hard to do, and I was hopefully able to do that. I've sung at literally every major opera house in America and every major symphony in America and most of the ones in the, in the rest of the world, too. So I've been very blessed. Talk to us about that first experience where you stepped out on the stage singing a role that you only dreamed that you might perform. What was that experience like for you? Well, you mean the first time or each time? Because every time it's different. As a bass, you don't get to sing lead roles, per se. You're the uh, king, godfather, priest, devil. Um, So definitely important, but not the lead role. It wasn't until recently that I started singing lead roles. Um, I can tell you that the first performance I ever performed was at Boston Lyric Opera in 1999, and we'd been rehearsing for four or five weeks, and I walked out on stage for opening night, and I saw all the tuxedos in the audience and everything there, and my mom and dad. And I was thinking to myself right before I sang my, my first note, what in the heck am I doing? <laughs> like, this can't be real. Uh, and that was interesting, but I think also now that I carry that same amount of of anxiety with me and desire to be good. So when... For instance, when I was asked to sing my first Porgy, uh, which is a role I never thought I'd sing, and for a lot of reasons, a role that I don't know that I'll sing a lot of, but we can talk about it later in conversation. But the, the feeling of carrying the whole show and that being on my shoulders at La Scala, you know, I made sure I did not psych myself out before I got there. The naysayers were plenty, and I've heard from them all and I heard about them all that, first of all, you're not suited for this role. There's no way you can sing it. Second of all, why would you do your first one at the most important opera house, arguably in the world? <laughs> and uh, but I've been in situations like that before. Uh, you know, most of the people in this business have never lined up in front of a guy that's three hundred pounds that wants to knock him out. You know, I've done that a lot. You know, so I think I'd be okay. <laughs> <laughs> it takes courage and it takes uh, hard work and discipline and preparation. And if you do all those things, then as as in athletics, if you prepare yourself and work hard and you're disciplined, then the game isn't as hard as practice. And I, tr- I take the same approach to music. If I work hard and prepare adequately, the game, the show, won't be so hard. How difficult was it for you to learn to sing in different languages? And is it for you singing the words you have to know and understand because it's a performance? Um, 
what those words mean because it, it is it is acting in a way. Talk to us about that. Well, it is, it's not acting in a way. It's acting. Um, the hard part, well, there, there are two phases. First of all, comprehension, mm-hmm. understanding exactly what I'm saying, what the character is thinking, what all the characters around you are thinking, who you're talking to, what they're thinking, why you're saying this to them, et cetera. And then there's the pronunciation and enunciation. You'd be surprised at how many native speakers are in the audience where you're singing these things. There can be people that live here that are from another country that come to the opera because you're singing it in their language and they want to be able to understand what you're saying. Just last week, I was called out on a gig, uh, on an emergency gig, because they, they lost somebody to go sing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It's in German, and it was in St. Louis. And after the second show, I probably had 15 native German speakers walk up to me and commend me on my diction and say that I understood every word you said. And that isn't a feather in my cap because I'm great. That's a feather in my cap because I prepared. I prepare, I work with native speakers when I learn these roles. Um, and I practice and practice and practice until I don't sound like a brother from Southwest Atlanta. You know, that comes out in every manner of speech, no matter how articulate I can be, uh, some part of Atlanta comes out. And it is my job to make sure that um, that isn't a liability of mine. So I work really hard at pronunciation, enunciation, and comprehension. And it's, you know, there's no quick way to do it. Uh, when I got to the Metropolitan Opera my first year, my first summer, they sent me to Italy. And I lived in Italy the whole summer. I lived with a family, and I studied Italian. The following year, I went to Germany. I did the same thing, but I did that in a school. So it was uh, in an effort to to hone my skills and in an effort to understand the, the fluidity of a language such that I could pronounce and enunciate things and understood how things went together, how they spoke. Um, <clears throat> now, do I sound like an Italian? Probably not. I mean, you know. Pavarotti spoke English, but I could tell he wasn't from Atlanta. So <laughs> I'm sure they can tell I'm not from Parma when I'm speaking Italian. But the effort is to make sure that I'm as close to it as I can possibly be. So lots of hard work. And I still work on those things to this day. What does your family make of your success? <laughs> because talk about making a, a life change and pivoting in your career. I've been doing it for 20 years now. I have nieces and nephews that never knew me to be anything but an opera singer. My son is 14. He grew up in this world. He's, he was at my first performance of Beethoven Ninth when he was a baby. He was at my first Sarastro when he was six months old. He's only known this. Um, my dad, my mom, my mom got to see me perform a lot before she passed away in 04. She's still here at Westview Cemetery. God rest her soul. I love her. Yeah. Uh, my dad still, he, he was supportive from the beginning. Uh, a little bit uncertain, but never told me that. He would just pull like my boys aside and say, are you sure he knows what he's doing? <laughs> and then he came to the Metropolitan Opera and said, wow, okay, I guess he knows what he's doing. So, and it's not so much an anomaly anymore. I mean, people, they, they just get it, you know. Uh, early on, there were lots of, yeah, you should do it. And then on the backside, like, are you sure he knows what he's doing? You know, um, yeah, it's, Denise is always supportive. She was always like, you know, why not? You know, just go forward and give it a shot. Um it's, it's been interesting. My teammates were really supportive. They were always supportive. Like, you can always come and do what we do, dog. Just go and do that. You know, if it don't work out, come on back. <laughs> so it was always that type of thing. So I felt like I had that amount. I had the support I needed. And, uh, you know, financially, I was smart enough to secure things such that I had a I had a 401k that I'd been saving in since I started at, 3, at 3M. So I just rolled that over into a Roth IRA and utilized the funds from that to pay my mortgage for two years while I was in school. And it was, I was fortunate because I sold my house at the time for the, 
the amount of money that I put aside, <laughs> I made it all back in that first sale. So then when I re- relocated to New York, I arrived with a with a nice load of cash. So that part was cool. Um, yeah, it's not because I'm smart or disciplined. It's because I think there's divine intervention also. You can't take the credit for everything. Talk to us about singing the role of, of, of Porgy, probably one of the most important American operas uh, of the 20th century. Tell me about this. Porgy is... Is a role I never thought I'd sing. Mm-hmm. It's uh, because I'm a true bass. Not lots of true basses sing Porky because it starts off, as my dear colleague Gordon Hawkins, who sung it a lot, told me. It starts off like Sarastro in Mozart's Die Zauberflitte, Magic Flute, and it ends up like Wotan or even more so Papageno. It's just a high baritone role at the end. Uh, Gershwin wrote it original originally for Paul Robeson, who did not do it. And so he secured Todd Duncan later on in the process, and he started writing for a baritone, which is Todd Duncan. So there are two voices in this role. So um, I never thought I'd do it for that reason. But also, as an African-American artist in opera, one of the things you're always told when you start out is to stay away from Porgy and Bess. Really? Absolutely. Why? Because historically, opera companies who don't have the forward vision of understanding that you can place people in different roles, once you sing the black roles— that's all you get offered. That's all you get offered. They just assume that you're good for that, but not good enough for this. You're good enough to sing English and Shuck and Jive, but you're not good enough to sing Verdi and Puccini. So I was very careful to make sure I sang Verdi and Puccini and Mozart and Wagner and all that stuff for 20, 17 years before I sang my first Porgy. And and then when I got asked to sing it, it was like, all right, it's La Scala. Like, I'm going to do this. This is the, this will be justification. He did one and he did it at La Scala. So <clears throat> there was that part. And then bringing the size of the instrument that I bring to it and my character, I'm an imposing figure. I'm 6'3", well over 300 pounds, unfortunately. But I'm a big brother, ball-headed. You know, I'm not the kicked puppy. And a lot of people play Porgy as a kicked puppy. You know, he's the poor crippled guy that gets bullied by Crown. and best, you know. So I wasn't doing that because, honestly, he's the strongest character in the show. Right. Everyone respects him. They sing about him before he comes out. They talk about how good he is and how he's too good to have this hussy as a as a as a spouse. Um, he's he's the the voice of reason. He's the voice of logic. He's the person they look up to. He's the one that stands up to the cops. You know, Porgy's not a, not a weak person. His legs just don't work. And ultimately, he realizes that the only way he's going to have best is if he kills Crown. And Crown is literally the town bully. So everyone's afraid of Pound Crown except for Porgy. And with broken legs that don't work and, you know, uh, a disadvantage physically, he's able to kill the baddest guy in the show. So he's not a punk. <laughs> and my poor gang will be a punk. So. <laughs> Obviously not. What have you not done yet that's on your to-do list, your bucket list, professionally? There, you know, it, it, it changes. There are roles that I have wanted to sing that I am now singing. There are just places that I want to sing those roles that I have not sung them. Hmm. Um, I just had a season announcement uh, last week from the Metropolitan Opera. I'll be singing Zacharia at the Metropolitan Opera, which is the largest bass role in the Italian repertoire. I get three arias and a whole bunch of scenes. It's like, it really should be called Zacharia, but it's called the Bugo, but I have the biggest, biggest role in the show. So I'm excited about that. And I'm pretty sure, and I'm, I'll bet anything on this. I'll be the first black Zachary in the history of the Metropolitan Opera. So I'm excited about that. But I want to sing that role at La Scala and Royal Opera House and Paris and, 
you know, all these other places. And I want to sing all the other stuff that I sing at other places. Um, there are still places in America where I have not sung the level of role that I'd like to sing. So that's just, you know, that's the divide and conquer right now, going to this place and knocking it out and then getting offered to other places. So those are my desires from an artistic on stage standpoint. Um, other than that, I'm, my, my passion is helping young people. You know, people heard my voice early on and said, wow, what a freak of nature. Where did he come from? And I'm thinking in the back of my head, I wouldn't even be the best singer on my college football team. Like, y'all, <laughs> y'all should hear my boy. You know, <laughs> you think I can sing. So it's an untapped talent pool. You know, a lot of times those that want to be good at something aren't the best ones at it. You know, because like, I was not. I was never thinking about being an opera singer. I never went to conservatory, but turns out that's it was my niche. It fit me. And, you know, finding that raw talent, finding people and young kids and, and letting them know that this is a viable option. And you don't have to come from a, a silver spoon. You don't have to be part of the aristocracy to participate in this art form. You can be good enough and you can get what you need to get. And you can be on these stages and singing, even if your voice doesn't make Beyonce or Wanye Morris runs like mine doesn't. So uh, it's important for me to to make make it a, make make people aware mm -hmm. that this is a viable option, uh, young people. So that's another passion of mine. Other thing is, you know, I got to find out. I have to, and if no one else is going to do it, I guess I got to do it. We have to get a grand opera, a big one, that makes sense in the operatic stage for orchestration, we got to find something to be what Aida should have been and to replace the Porgy and Besses because I'm tired of bringing brothers and sisters to the opera for the first time to see me and we shucking and jiving mm -hmm. and we wearing rags and we poor and we got drug addicts and drug heads and drug dealers and we murdering each other. It, it's got to be something else out there. It's got to be more material. And, um, you know, we are sticking our toe in the water with – a mixture of genres. We have black composers that are writing music, but I'm looking for the one that can write this grand opera, this big deal. We can write as well as Puccini and Verdi did. We can write that style of music and still keep it in our framework so we don't have to do this anymore, you know? I understand. You feel me? I, mean, I do. Black people, I'm going to say this, don't love to come see Porgy and Bess. It's not our show. White people let's see that. They love to see us on stage shucking and jiving and dancing. That's their thing. And if it weren't for the nobility of the character and the beauty of the music, I probably wouldn't be doing it and doing it at home. So I'm I'm still toying with that. Not because I'm blessed and I'm singing Zachary and, and Don Carlo and I'm singing uh, you know, I can't look down upon this work because if it weren't for this, a lot of brothers and sisters wouldn't be able to eat in this business. However, let's go further now, you know, and I'm looking forward to finding what that, that opportunity is and making that thing happen. So, yeah. One last question. Your son, you said 14 years old. Does he have a voice? So it's interesting you would ask that. Um, Miles is, first of all, he's a brilliant kid. I love him to death. He's a mini me, realistically. He's Super duper smart. Not that I am, but he certainly is. He has a very sarcastic sense of humor, which I love. Uh, it backfires on me a lot. But he's in the chorus, and he made honors chorus, and he's the only ninth grader to get asked to audition for Allstate, and I've only heard him sing once, and I had to pay him money to do that. So like, you're singing what? He's singing an Italian aria for some audition. And I'm like, where'd you learn that? Sing it for me. No, I ain't going to sing it for you. Miles, sing it for you. I won't sing it for you. Here's 50 bucks. Sing it for me. Okay. And then he sang it for me. And his Italian was pretty doggone good, rolling the R's and everything. So I said to him, I said, where did you learn how to do that? Oh, I was upstairs in my room, just practice it. With who? By myself. Okay. And I looked at his mom and said, I think he has the gene. <laughs> so we'll find out. You know, he's, he's a tenor right now. His voice hasn't changed. So we'll see. He, there's no pressure. I mean, if he wants to get into this, 
crazy world. You know, certainly he'll have access, and uh, we'll see. But right now, I got his big butt working out with the football team, which he doesn't <laughs> want to do, but he's already like 6'2", 280, so he's- He's, he's a mini you. He's going to do that. He's <laughs> a mini you. Well, friends, we've been talking to Miles Robinson's dad, Morris Robinson, <laughs> Atlanta native, who is singing the role of Porgy in Porgy and Bess at the Cobb Energy Center. Tickets start at $45. They can be purchased at atlantaopera.org. Morris is singing. You want to see him on the 7th, the 8th or the 10th. This has been a real treat. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. Perspectives is a community and public affairs program crafted with you in mind. If there's a guest you'd like to hear interviewed or a perspective you think should be explored, let me know. If you're old school, just write me. 1601 West Peachtree Street, Northeast, Atlanta, Georgia, 30309. Or message me via social media. I'm Condos Presley on Facebook, Condo29 on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Be sure to listen again next week at this very same time as we examine another perspective. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.